Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. If you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome to you. We'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And like John was saying, small groups are one of the best ways to do that. And, and so we just love to invite you to consider that and, and uh, come on out. It's just a great way to get to know people and get plugged in, grow in your faith. So excited as well. Continue our series in the Gospel of John. Uh, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John since probably September or so. We're almost finished. We're near the last couple of chapters, and we're going to kind of time our study in John uh, with uh, our celebration of Easter and kind of those uh, the passages coinciding with that. But there's been a couple of passages that we haven't got to. I've had to skip over because we just didn't quite have time. And so uh, after we kind of finish up working our way through John, we're going to spend about a month kind of working our way back through a couple more passages. We didn't quite get time to go through call it like the B-sides of John, and we'll uh, do a few last really important ones from there. And, and then I still got to figure out what we're doing after that, so we'll figure it out together. So I'll let you know when I know. So, um, But if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time, uh, when it comes to John, it's really important to understand that like the other three gospel writers, John's telling the story of Jesus' life and ministry, but he's doing it in a really unique way because uh, he ignores all kinds of things the other three gospel writers focus on, and, and at the same time, he offers us a bunch of new stories about Jesus' life and ministry. And we've seen how the, the reason for all those differences has everything to do with the, the fact that John's primary purpose in writing the Gospel of John isn't to uh, introduce people to Jesus for the first time necessarily, but it's really to, it, uh, is to help awaken a, a real, authentic heart-level faith in Jesus amongst the people who just have kind of a head-level familiarity with him. And, and, and see, what John's hope and his prayer is, is that in seeing Jesus through a new lens, that people's kind of lifeless, head-level knowledge about Jesus might finally become like real, life-transforming, heart-level faith in him. And, and that it might produce life in them that lasts for eternity, but also that begins now and that transforms their everyday here and now. And we saw the first half of the book, John focuses on Jesus' public ministry, where he recounts uh, for us how Jesus traveled around preaching and teaching and doing miracles. And at the heart of that first half of John's gospel is, is this proclamation of that Jesus is God, that he's the Messiah come to rescue and redeem people from their sin. And, and he's calling people to faith in who Jesus said that he was. But in the second half of the book, John zooms in into Jesus' final few days with his disciples. And as he kind of withdraws from the crowds and invests his remaining time in them and trying to prepare them for the kind of life and ministry he was calling them to lead as, as his representatives after his death. And so if the first half of John's gospel is all about helping people see who Jesus claimed he was and putting their faith in him, and the second half is all about helping us see what does it really mean to follow Jesus? What does that look like? And how, and what is it? What is a real faith in Him look like lived out in our lives? And and we've seen specifically in the last few chapters how one of the things John wants us to wrestle with is the fact that authentically following Jesus and living as His witnesses in, in the world, it will invariably lead to a life that involves sacrifice and trial and opposition. And yet, at the same time, what John and Jesus want His disciples to know is that it's also a life that's full of joy and one that's full of peace and. We saw last week at the end of chapter 16 how one of the ways to experience the joy and the peace that Jesus wants his disciples to have is, is through prayer. 
And he talked about being able to come to God knowing that he hears you because of what Jesus has done and, and seeing him respond to requests that we make that are in alignment with God's heart and with his desires. What it does is it keeps refueling our joy. But as we continue our study this morning in John chapter 17, what, we're going to see a, a whole other kind of prayer. And in fact, we're going to see a, a prayer that has more joy-producing power than any of our own ever could. We're going to see Jesus himself the very Son of God, praying for us, for you and for me. On the eve of his death and his final night with his disciples, he, as their time is coming to an end, Jesus turns his eyes towards heaven and he prays out loud for them to hear and for us to hear. And he gives us this kind of behind-the-scenes tour into the, God's heart for his people and how God feels about them and what he thinks about them and what he longs for about them. And so if you want to know what God thinks about those who put their trust in him, if you want to know what he longs most deeply for you to see and to experience, if you want to know where to start praying for yourself, then John 17 is a great place to start. As we take a look at Jesus interceding for us and what's often commentators refer to it as his high priestly prayer, what I want to show you is that the very center of God's heart for his people his, his desire for us, his chief desire for us is that we might see and be transformed by his glory. You see, what he knows is that the thing that transforms our hearts and our lives is when we see him for who he really is. And that transforms us. And it's been such an encouragement to me this week. I've been praying it would be for you as well, and so I can't wait to show it to you. So let's pray and we'll, we'll dive in together. God, thanks so much for you and for your word and God, we're just grateful to get to gather this morning to, to, to open it and to study it together. And So God, as we come this morning to hear your own prayer for us, as we come to see your heart for us, your people, God, we, we pray that you might be gracious uh, to help the goodness and the richness that is here to sink deeply into our hearts, and uh, that you might be transforming us as we see the truth about you, as we see your glory, God. And so God, we, we want to be a people who who reflect the things you pray for here. And we're grateful that uh, you've prayed them for us because you want it to be true of us. And we're grateful, Jesus, that you are the one that's working those things out in us. And so uh, we just want to come this morning admitting our dependence on you and our need for you, and just like as welcoming and joy, knowing that you love to meet us in that spot. So now we just pray for our good and for your glory. Would you keep showing us who you really are in your word this morning? Amen. Well, like I said, we're going to be in John chapter 17, and we've been in the previous couple of chapters, we've been taking a look at uh, what was John refers to as the farewell discourse. It's a section of John's gospel where Jesus is kind of concluding remarks to his disciples, and we pick it up at the very end of that here in John 17. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those who you have given him. And now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. I've revealed you. To those whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you've given me comes from you, for I gave them the words that you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. 
And I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. And all I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And the glory has come to me through them. And I'll remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. And I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I'm of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they might be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, Those, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. Now, there is so much here for us to get to this morning, but two important things before we kind of dive into Jesus' prayer here this morning. The first is that this is one of those passages that you could like spend a whole year preaching on and still not like plumb the depths of everything that's in here. It's, it's that rich, it's that deep, it's that, that significant. And at some point down the road, we'll come back and, and we'll uh, do a whole series on it. We'll slow down and work our way through it a little bit more, uh, not anytime soon, but we'll come back eventually. But uh, this time through, we got one week. Um, and so just as a heads up, we are not going to cover everything, right? We are not gonna, we're not going to be able to get to everything that's in here. But secondly, yet, in order to really understand this prayer that Jesus prays here, you have to understand first who Jesus is praying for. You see, Jesus makes clear that he's not praying for everyone. It's verse 9, he says that he's not praying for the world, right? But rather that he's praying specifically for those the Father has given him. Those who, verse 8 says, have accepted and received his words. Meaning that they've responded in faith to Jesus' claims to, to be God himself. And whose faith, as verse 6 mentioned, is, is evidenced by their obedience. is evidenced by their transformed lives. And so, in other words, the, the people that Jesus is praying for here are, are his disciples, But John makes clear that Jesus wasn't just praying for the disciples who heard Jesus' words that night. Verse 20 says that Jesus is praying for all those who will believe in me through their message. What that means is that if you've responded to the message of the gospel, if you've responded to the person and the work of Jesus with a kind of faith that's changing your life, if you are his disciples, 
then Jesus' words this morning are a prayer for you. Jesus himself, the very Son of God, is praying for you and for me this morning. And that is just incredible. And so what I want to do with our time together is I just want to highlight for you four things that Jesus prays for his people. Four things he, he asks the Father to do for those who have put their trust in him. And the, the first thing I want to show you is that Jesus prays. He says, he prays, Father, protect them. Verse 11, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. Goes on in verse 12, while I was with them, I protected them, and he kept them safe by the name that you gave me. Verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. See, Jesus understands the very real dangers that his disciples are going to face in the world. And not just the physical dangers he warned them about in chapters 15 when he warned them that they should expect hatred and opposition and persecution and even excommunication and death. But, the, but he's warning here, he's praying here in mind of the greater spiritual dangers that those trials pose, right? And he's praying against the enemy who's truly behind those things, Satan, the evil one. You see, when it comes to the spiritual warfare that Jesus has in mind here, I just need to say there's just two important things that, that you see. You see, some Christians have this tendency to over-spiritualize everything, right? Like every bad thing that goes wrong in your life, like that is a spiritual attack, right? That car accident you got in last week, that was a demonic attack for sure, 100%, right? And the reality is, is not only is that wildly unlikely, uh, it's just not helpful for you or for anyone else. See, on the other hand, some Christians tend to, tend to under-spiritualize everything. We look at the problems we face in our marriages or in our ministries with our kids. We evaluate the issues that we see in our country or our world or whatever it might be. And we tend to identify other people or, or policies that that's the problem that needs to be addressed. And we forget, like Paul says in Ephesians 6, that our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, what Jesus understands is that Satan and demons, they're real. And they're opposed to God and they're opposed to his people. And their ultimate goal is to lead people away from faith in God and away from the truth about him and to cause people to doubt God's word and to doubt his work and, and to cause people to turn away from following him just like he did uh, with Adam and Eve in the garden by lying to them and causing them to doubt God's wisdom and his goodness and his love for them. And so fully aware of that reality, Jesus prays that the Father would protect his disciples from the spiritual attacks, and he says that he would do it by the power of his name. Literally, that phrase uh, in verse 11, Jesus' request is translated, Father, keep them in your name. In other words, Jesus is asking the Father to, to protect his people from the very real spiritual attacks of the enemy. It's important you see this, not by preventing them altogether, not by, not by sparing us from any of those attacks altogether, but instead by fortifying our faith in his name, in the truth about him, in who he is as Jesus has shown us to, him to be. And so that, so that when they, those trials do come, when those attacks do come, we'll be able to withstand them because we know what's true. And we can see the, the lies of the enemy for the lies that they really are and identify and reject them and instead hold tightly to the truth about God that we've come to see and believe through the person and the work of Jesus. 
And at this point, some of you are sitting here and you're starting to get a little bit nervous because the idea of spiritual warfare or spiritual attacks, that's not only new to you, that that seems scary. And I just want to encourage you with this. Jesus prays here that the Father would protect you. And the Father always answers Jesus' prayers. And so while we can't afford to be blissfully unaware of the reality of the spiritual battles around us, you can have great confidence that God's the one who's fighting those battles for you. Right? The, the danger is real, but so is the one protecting us. Right? So ask him to fortify, ask him to build up your faith in him and in his name. That's where the safety and the protection that you need, like that's where it is. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10 puts it this way. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous, they run into it, and they are safe. To the safety, the security, the protection that we need in the midst of spiritual attacks, it comes through a fortified faith in who God is, as Jesus has proved him to be for us. So the first thing Jesus prays for his disciples is that the Father would protect us, that he'd keep us safe from the spiritual attacks of the evil at one. But we see as well in verse 11 that verse 11 goes on, right? Jesus prays, Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. And that brings us to the second thing we see Jesus praying for us. He, he prays, Father, unify them. You see, Jesus repeats this request for the unity of his people again in verses 20 through 23. He, he says it this way. He prays that all of us might be one, Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you. May they also be in us so that the world might believe that you've sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. See, Jesus is praying here not only that we might have the joy of experiencing unity with him, but that also he's praying that the, that the unity that he and the Father have together in the midst of the Trinity, that the unity that he has in the Godhead, that it would be the pattern for our own unity with one another. You see, and to be clear, we have to understand that Jesus isn't praying for uniformity. Right in the Trinity, there is sameness and there's difference, right? Jesus isn't just praying for uniformity. Uniformity is just when everything is all exactly the same. But unity is different because unity is about oneness in the midst of differences. Unity is about oneness in the midst of differences. And so even though we're united by a common faith in Jesus, the church is made up of very different people. And we come from different ethnic backgrounds and different cultural backgrounds. We might have different uh, thoughts on different theological positions or philosophies of ministry or political backgrounds. We might have differing opinions or convictions about parenting or education or healthcare or a bajillion other things. And yet one of the primary ways that we demonstrate the transforming love of God and the unity that exists in the midst of his relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit is when we are characterized by a oneness in the midst of our differences, not because of a lack of difference. See, if you look at the history of the early church in the Roman Empire, one of the things that you find that was so compelling in the Roman world about the Christian church was that they had a kind of unity that could be found nowhere else. 
See, Christians came from all kinds of different social, political, financial, cultural, ethnic backgrounds across the board, things that in the Roman world radically divided people. And they still do today. And yet the church had this deep sense of unity and oneness amongst one another, even in the midst of all those differences. And we see in the book of Acts how they had everything in common with one another. Because the thing that brought them together wasn't a lack of differences. The thing that brought them together was the person and the work of Jesus. It was the common denominator that overrode all of the differences that would normally divide them. And you can't miss this. The basis for the kind of unity that Jesus prays for in verse 11, it's rooted in what we believe about him. Right? It's rooted in a fortified faith in his name, in who Jesus has shown us the truth about who God really is and what he is like. In college, I remember there was a group on campus who would try to hold these events and they try to, where they try to kind of get Christians and Muslims and Jewish people from Jewish backgrounds together. It was a, if I remember correctly, it was called the Children of Abraham. And, and the kind of the message of the group was basically like, hey, we're all the same. Right? We, we can all kind of trace our spiritual roots back to Abraham. So, so we, are all, we all worship the same God. So like, let's just be united around that. Like we, have this, we have this unity that just comes from, from that common spiritual ancestor. And, but the, the truth is, is the Bible doesn't say that Abraham is the foundation of our faith. It says Jesus is. And it doesn't say what you believe about Abraham is the thing that unites us. It says what you believe about Jesus is the thing that unites us. And if you don't worship Jesus as God, then we don't worship the same God. And I just want to be clear, I'm not advocating that Christians should be standoffish or elitist or should try to like push people from other faiths away. Like I'm, not, I'm not trying to advocate that at all. But what I am saying is that the kind of unity that Jesus is praying for here is not possible unless he is the foundation of the unity. He's the basis for it and the pattern for it. And without him, we cannot have the kind of unity that he is praying we would be characterized by as his people. See, the the unity that Jesus is praying for here, it's unique, it's distinct from the kind of unity that the world pursues. See, in the world, unity comes by excluding or demonizing anyone who thinks differently than you. Or it comes, uh, conversely, by simply requiring that everyone ignore all the differences amongst us. That we just say nothing, none of the differences matter, we just ignore all of them. And it's the kind of unity that Jesus prays for and the kind of unity his disciples, the, the New Testament writers, the kind of unity they taught and pursued is fundamentally different. It's a, it's a oneness that comes from having the most important thing in common, having him in common. And when he's the thing that brings us together, it, it, and when the truth about him is our foundation, then we're able to be united in the midst of all kinds of other differences. And what I'm not saying is that having different theological positions or different philosophies of ministry doesn't matter. What I'm just saying is that the person and the work of Jesus makes it possible so that God's people aren't divided by those things. I'm so grateful for the ways I see that happening in our church here all the time. And there are people from all different kinds of political backgrounds and spiritual backgrounds and all different kinds of situations here at River City. But there are not any wars happening here. It's because Jesus is the thing that brings us together. He's the thing that unites us. He's the ban- like, he, like his flag's the one that we're waving. 
I'm also grateful for the ways I see that happening amongst a lot of the churches here in Dubuque. Aaron and I have great relationships with a number of other church pastors and leaders throughout the city. Even though we might have some differences and maybe some theological uh, views or maybe a few differences in philosophy of ministry, we have great relationships and great rapport and great partnership amongst many of the other churches and leaders in Dubuque. Because the thing that unites us is Jesus and his word and the good news of the gospel being the priority. But there's often times when other church leaders might come to us and they just say, hey, let's just all be unified. But, but the Bible is really just like a book that has some good suggestions for them. Right? And Jesus is just an example of love and of kindness, not of the kind of purity and righteousness and holiness of God. And the reality is, is that like, we're not on the same team. Because that's a different Jesus than the Bible says he is. See, because the unchanging truth about Jesus that's, reve- that's revealed in the Scripture, that's not the thing that's at the center. And when he's not at the center, when his word is not the thing that's at the center, then it's just like there is no foundation for the kind of real transforming unity he calls us to. See, we can't be one as Jesus and the Father are one unless we're united around the truth of his name. His word But when that does happen, when Jesus and his word is at the center, God's people can be characterized by the kind of deep unity and oneness in the midst of differences. And when that happens, as Jesus prays, it's going to be this proclamation to the world of his divine identity and of his transforming love for people. D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, the unity of the disciples as it approaches the the perfect unity goal It serves not only to convince many in the world that Christ is indeed the supreme divine revelation, but that Christians themselves have been caught up into the very same love that the Father has for his Son. It is hard to imagine a more compelling evangelistic appeal. See, that brings us to the third thing I want to show you this morning that Jesus prays for us. He prays, verse 17, Father sanctify them. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. That word sanctify, it's a word that means to to be set apart as holy, to be uniquely dedicated to something, to be exclusively devoted to something. And when you read the Bible, what you find is that the the kind of set-apartness that God calls his people to be characterized by, it has kind of like two main aspects to it, right? And the first is that that we're set apart from something. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says it this way, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Romans chapter 12 verse 2, Do not conform to the patterns of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. You see, in every age and in every culture, at all points in history, the challenge of God's people has been to not be conformed to the world around us, but to instead be set apart from it. And so when it comes to money and power and sex and when it comes to priorities and prerogatives and when it comes to even our very motivations, we're called as God's people to live and to act and to think in ways that are fundamentally different 
than the world around us. See, but Jesus makes clear it's not just different for difference sake. Right? It's different because it's in alignment with the truth of God's word. See, you and I, we live in a world that says whatever you think, whatever you feel is true and right and good is. And yet the message, resounding message from the beginning of the Bible to the end is that you and I are not the arbiters of what is true and right and good. God is. And it's his truth. That's not a truth, but that is the truth. And what, dis- what separates God's people from the world, what sets us apart, is that we align ourselves with his truth rather than our own. That's at the heart of what it means to be set apart from the world, is to agree with God that his truth is the truth and to align ourselves with him. See, but Jesus isn't just praying that we'd be set apart from something. He's also praying here that like him, we would be set apart for something. Verse 19, he says, For them I sanctify myself, that they too might be truly sanctified. Again, that word sanctified, it means to be set apart as holy. It means to be reserved for, to be dedicated to, to be exclusively set apart for something. Right? And Jesus, he, what he's sanctifying himself for, what he's setting himself apart for, is God's purposes and his mission, and it's our redemption. In a few hours, Jesus is going to be in the midst of the Garden of Gethsemane with the cross just moments before him. And he's going to pray, Father, as he's asking the Father, take this cup from me. But he says instead, Father, but in the end, not my will, but yours be done. You see, the sanctification that Jesus is praying for here and that he models for us is not just that we'd be set apart from the world by the truth of his word, but that we would be set apart for God's and his purposes in the world. Verse 18, just as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Church, here's, here's the truth you have to understand. Right? You and I, we are not just sitting around biding our time until Jesus comes back or we kick the bucket. We have been sent on an urgent mission by the King Himself. Just as He was sent, He sends us out into the world to proclaim the truth about God and the good news of the gospel that Jesus is. God, the king and creator of everyone and everything, and that he's come to rescue us from the enemies of Satan and sin and death, and that even though we have all lived as mutinous rebels against him, that redemption and forgiveness is possible through faith in him. And so as God's people, we can never forget that Jesus' prayer for us and that our calling as his people is not to live lives that are detached from the world, not to live lives that are unengaged with it. Right? Verse 15, Jesus specifically prays, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but instead he prays that we might live distinct and different lives in the world, set apart from it for the sake of God's purposes in it. See, Jesus prays all of that for us. He prays for our protection. He prays for our sanctification. He prays for our unity. 
Because what he knows is that instead of being set apart for God's purposes and his priorities, we tend to set ourselves apart for our own purposes and our own priorities. And instead of living as in a humble unity that points others to him, we are so easily consumed by selfish ambition. And instead of finding protection and security in the truth of his name, we try to find security and protection by fortifying our own names and our own reputations. And Jesus doesn't just know that we do that. He knows why we do it. And so there's one more thing that he prays for us. He prays that we might see his glory. See, the thing you and I are all so desperately hungry for, the reason why it is so important for Jesus to pray all the stuff he already prayed for us is because all of us are starving for glory. We are starving for significance and worth. We are desperate to know that we matter in an eternal kind of way. What Jesus wants us to see in his prayer this morning is that the only way that changes is when you see his glory. Verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. That word glory, it means weightiness, significance, worth. Jesus understands that when we see his glory, when we see his eternal, divine weight of his worthiness, when we see the, the weightiness of his significance, what's going to happen is it's going to make everything else seem worthless in comparison. It's going to make our name and our distinctions and our priorities, it's going to make them seem very light and very momentary. And it's going to give us an accurate perspectives on what truly matters most which is him. But it does more than just give us an accurate perspective. See, seeing his glory, it actually satisfies our own longing for glory ourselves. Because what we see in Jesus' own prayer for glory here is that God doesn't hoard glory for himself. He shares it. He gives it. Verse 1, glorify your son, Jesus prays, so that your son might glorify you. Verse 22, I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one, even as we are. See, without Jesus, without the gospel, all of us are still starving for glory. We're all desperate to find some way to know that we matter, that we have significance, that we have worth, that's not just temporary, but that's lasting and deep. But because of Jesus, not only do we see him setting aside his own glory in the gospel, we see him proving that you and I have glory. You see, he's, his willing death for us, that's the ultimate proof of the fact that he values you. The fact of the worth, the weightiness of the worth and the value that he places on you is so great that he's willing to go to the cross even for you. And when you see that, what you see is that he's bestowing on you the kind of glory that you are desperate to find somewhere else, but that nothing else can give you. But more than that, we see as well, he shows us that the way to get glory is by giving it up. 
On the cross, Jesus got the thing that you and I are most afraid of. He got the lack of glory that you and I are so desperately afraid of. He was despised. He was rejected. He got the thing that you and I are most desperate to avoid. And yet Philippians 2 goes on to say it this way, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should acknowledge, should confess that he is Lord. See, the message of the gospel is not just that you and I have a glorious weight and worth to God himself, but it's the reminder that the way up is down, the way to receive the glory you're after, is to admit you don't have any of your own. And to receive the glory God wants to share with you. And when we see that God emptied himself of his glory so that we could share in it with him, what that does is it sets you free. It frees you from from the need to find your security in your own name. And it frees you from that selfish ambition and it frees you from living for yourself and your own priorities. And instead it empowers you to run to him in faith for security. And it enables you to live a life of humility that points others towards God in unity with other believers. And it enables you to live set apart for his purposes even when those things are costly and even when they mean the death of your own glory and your own ambitions because you see that not only has he done it for you, but you see that giving it up is the way to real life. And he's shown it to you that way. And it's only when you and I might see that Jesus did that for us, when he prayed that for us, when he desired to share his glory with us, not when we loved him, not when we worshipped him, not when we said that he was God, but when we were his enemies. It's only when you see that that's the moment he comes for you. That you'll not just have the example you need, but you'll actually have the power you need to do it. See, the glory of God on display in the person and the work of Jesus, it doesn't just melt your heart. It transforms it. It renews it. And when you see his glory, it changes you. See, it's God's glory that's on display in the cross. That's what we're remembering. That's what we're celebrating every week when we take communion together. Reminding ourselves of his body and his blood broken and shed for you and for me so that he might share his glory with us. That he might prove it to us, our worth to him. And so communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's a chance for us to remember Jesus and all that he has done for us so that in love for him, we might, and as, that in seeing his glory shared with us would be empowered to live as his people in the world, set apart for his purposes, not our own. And so if you put your faith in Jesus to be your savior and your king, or you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. There's a table on the back on the left and on the right, and you can dip the bread in the juice as a reminder of his body and his blood broken and shed for you. But if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're still figuring out what that even means and if that's even something you want to do. I just want you to know how welcome you are here. 
And communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is, and River City is. And God's not after going through the motions, and he's not after religious rituals. He's after a heart that says, Jesus, you're the thing that I need above everything else. Only you have the glory that I'm after. Only you have it. Only you're worthy of it. Only you give it. And so as we celebrate communion, as we remember the gospel together in song this morning, I want to encourage you, wherever you are at this morning, talk with God. Some of you are here, and you have not yet gotten even a glimpse of God's glory. And you see people, and you see Christians choosing to prioritize God's purposes over their own. It just like doesn't make sense to you. That's because you've spent a life consumed by the pursuit of your own glory, and that is actually the very thing that is keeping you from not only experiencing the glory God wants to share with you, but it's keeping you from putting your faith in Him. John chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus speaking to the religious leaders of His day, He says, How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? See, what you and I need most deeply this morning is for God to graciously give us a glimpse of His glory. And I just want to encourage you this morning. Ask him to do that for you. Ask him to do it for you, even for the first time this morning. Ask him to help you see the surpassing magnitude and goodness of his weightiness and his worth and his value. Ask him to help you see his glory so that you can lay your own down and be able to actually receive the thing he wants to give you. And so some of you are here and you need to ask God to give you a first glimpse of his glory. But maybe others of you are here and you are a Christian. What I need you to see this morning is that you've got to keep asking God for the same thing. See, in verse 13, Jesus says that he prays all these things so that we might have his joy. And the way you keep your joy tank full is by asking God to do the very same things that Jesus asks him to do for you. Ask him for protection. Ask him to unify you with his people. Ask him to set you apart from this world for his purposes. And ask him to keep showing you his glory. See, for those of us who have put our trust in him, there will come a day when you and I will be with Jesus where he is face to face and we will see the radiant splendor of his eternal, divine, majestic glory. And John, 1 John chapter 3 tells us when we see him, we're going to be transformed to be like him once and for all. But the truth is that what we will see in full that day and forever be changed by we get to see in part and be changed by now. See, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul, Apostle Paul, he writes it this way. He says, And we who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from him. See, the more you see God's glory, the more you become who he's made you to be. That's just the truth of it. And so ask him to keep showing you his glory so that you might increasingly, as you see him, 
be transformed and empowered to live as his witnesses in the world until he comes. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful this morning to get to come to you. And we just know we have access to you because not because of our own name, but because of Jesus and all he's done for us. And so we come, Father, asking for the very same things he did. God, would you protect us from the spiritual attacks of the enemy? Would you fortify our faith in your name so that we'll be safe in you? God, would you unify us as your people so that we might proclaim to the world with our lives the kind of oneness that only your sacrificial love can produce? And might you sanctify us, set us apart, Jesus, from the world so that we might live for your purposes in it. Jesus, help us to see your glory so that all of that will become true. We pray, amen.